0: This is the fundamental question of the self-aware. What is the meaning of life? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever been asked that question? Have you ever been asked to preach on that question? (laughs) It's harder than the first one. Uh, I am a huge fan of Rush, the band, not the political commentator. Anytime I get the chance, which is not often, I like to quote Rush. Uh, I find their lyrics to be amazing. And Neil Peart, who authored the song Free Will, says this Each of us, a cell of awareness, imperfect and incomplete, genetic blends with uncertain ends on a fortune hunt that's far too fleet. We're just genetic blends with uncertain ends. On a fortune hunt that's far too fleeting. And that's his view of this question, or his way of asking this question why am I here? Now, Sam Harris, who's an author and a uh, public uh, figure, also an atheist, uh, generally writes uh, against religion, and specifically against this question. He says that this question, why am I here, or what's the meaning of life, Sam Harris argues that this is a glitch in the software of the human mind. That the very question itself, why am I here, simply, so his perspective is, we're nothing more than the product of random chance. Uh, two molecules smash together, and here we are. And so, the question, why am I here, is a meaningless question. He would argue, and of course, according to his worldview, he's completely logical in this. He would argue that it's a glitch in the human mind. We shouldn't even ask the question. But I want to lean into that a little bit and just say, and, and with all due respect, because Harris is a brilliant guy, with all due respect, calling the question names and telling me I can't ask that question, that's. There's not integrity there. For, for we ask the question. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a self-evident fact. We ask the question, why am I here? Animals don't ask that question, right? Plant life does not ask that question, but we ask the question. And so simply to say, well, it's a glitch, I don't think that that's, uh, I don't think that that's frankly philosophic integrity. So we ask the question, now I want to say uh, at the outset, my goal here is not to present to you all the philosophical options to the question, I'm not a philosopher. My job and role today is to present to you, to the best of my ability, what I think Christ teaches in relation to the question, why are we here? My goal also is not to answer all of your questions. And if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, I want to tell you on the front end following Jesus will introduce you to exponentially more questions than you currently have. The goal of faith, the goal of life is not to have all your questions answered. You will never find, I don't think, if you're a thinking person, that you will ever find yourself saying, I'm done asking. Now as a Christian, I believe that we exist for eternity, that we will exist eternally in the future. And I believe that my curiosity will never be completely satisfied because God is an infinite being and I am not. And so I will have, I believe, eternity to explore and have questions. But in this moment now, we ask these questions. True faith is never without deep questions. I would encourage you, by the way, we have some discussion groups. We can put it up here on the screen. We have some discussion groups uh, coming up. We'll be over at the Haymaker. I'd encourage you to join us and invite your friends to that. There's cards uh, on the table out in the lobby that you can give to friends. We're going to have open discussion. Uh, these are not lectures, but they are guided discussions. We'll kind of guide them and keep them on track because, as you know, when you talk about uh, these types of things, uh, you're gonna end up talking about aliens. So we're gonna keep that tight. Uh, if you wanna to talk to me about aliens, I'd be glad to, but again, we, we, it's a guided discussion. So I wanna present what Christ says. Now for some of us, we think, okay, that's just like you evangelical Christians. You're always trying to impose your views on other people. Some of us are saying that right now. That's the problem with the evangelical Christians is they're always trying to convert people. And I wanna say at the outset, you are right in your assessment that we are always trying to convert people. But what I would like for you to consider is, you are too. You're trying to convert me too, because, because underneath that criticism, evangelicals shouldn't try to convert people, underneath that criticism is this presumption, that your worldview is somehow better than mine. And you wish, or you think, the world would be better if I didn't try to convert people. To put it another way, Every time you open your mouth in an argument or a a, a belief or a statement, you're trying to convert the other person to your views. Jack in the Box is empirically better than McDonald's. That is an attempt to convert you to my worldview, is it not? The Christian worldview is exponentially more intellectually satisfying, emotionally engaging, and experientially cohesive than any other worldview. I'm trying to convince you of that, but anytime time you open your mouth to talk back to me, you're trying to convince me of your worldview as well. And so the question is not who's trying to convert who or who should try to convert one another. The question is which worldview, if believed, is the most intellectually satisfying, emotionally stimulating, and experientially cohesive. I want to argue that Jesus' worldview uh, uh, checks those boxes. There's three things as we look to the scriptures as to the Jesus' worldview that I would like to put in front of you today. Again, I will mention some of the other views, not, not to give you the impression that I'm conquering over all of their very excellent points, but rather simply to tease out some of the implications as it relates to what Jesus teaches. And there's three uh, basic things. Number one, that we were created. Number two, that we were created in love. And number three, we were created in love for joy. Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? We were created in love for joy. Here we go. Genesis 1, 24 through 27. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to, to uh, turn there. Genesis 1, uh, verses uh, 24 through 27. There's Bibles available on the tables in the back. We'll have it up on the screen. You can also use your digital device if you want to this morning. Genesis 1, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to look to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the middle of the Bible in the book of John, and the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And so today you can go home and you can call your grandma and you can say, Grandma, I read the whole Bible today at church. Genesis 1, 24 through 27. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. We are created beings. Now, this is a direct conflict with the view that says we are merely the products of random chance. The scripture teaches, Jesus teaches us that we are created. And one of the things that that gives us is that we are made in the image and likeness of God with dignity, worth, and value. This is why, this, this idea that you and I are made in the image and likeness of God, this is why Jesus can say the audacious things that he says, like, love your neighbor as your And also, love your, this is so, <laughs> I don't like this. Love your enemy. Jesus can say that because he shows us that we are created in the image and likeness of God. It's the very foundation of that idea that we should love even our enemies because even our enemies are created in the image and likeness of God. If you look through the book of Genesis, you will see that there is a prohibition against murder. And we say, thank God. Would we'll you do that one more time. There's a prohibition against murder. Thank God, yeah, I'm glad for that. And the reason that there's a prohibition against murder, the scripture says you don't murder because people are made in the image of God. We are created beings. What this means then is this gives the very foundation of this statement. There is no such thing as a throwaway person. There are no throwaway people. Every person has worth. The whole, uh, and I want to lean into this just a little bit. Why shouldn't we bully? Okay, so if I'm nothing more than the product of random chance, if you believe that, why shouldn't I bully other people? So as a Christian, I want to argue we shouldn't bully other people because every person, even the weak and the least of these, are made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, when I abuse, when I bully, when I hurt others... I am marring in that other person or disrespecting in that other person the very image of God within them, but if that person is nothing more than a sack of chemicals, why shouldn't I treat them? Why are you so mad that I treat them like a sack of chemicals? What? So, so one of the things that this idea of the imago Dei, the image of God gives us, is it helps us understand the good. What is the good? Let me do it inverse like this. Is there anything going on in the world today that you think is wrong? Yes. Yeah. Is there anything in the world, anything that happens in the world right now that you say, this is not just an inconvenience, this is not just bad for business, it's wrong? Yes. You know, one of the things that we do if we, if we shuttle Christianity is we lose the ability to call things evil. For the idea of evil, believes that there's a good and a what? Evil. That there is the good. How do you know the good? Jesus shows us that we are made in the image and likeness of God. If it is true that it is always wrong to torture babies, if that's true, it must be based on the idea that babies have inherent dignity, worth, and value because they are made in the image and likeness of God. I know some of us are going to shy away from this. I just want to touch on this real quick, and I know I'm trampling, so please forgive me. The reason that evangelical Christians are so vocal about abortion is not because we're angry. At moms, the reason that we're so vocal about abortion is because we believe that the child has inherent dignity, worth, and value because the child is formed together in the mother's womb, made in the image and likeness of God. Do you see how that fundamental belief plays itself out in the public square? You guys follow me on that? So that idea, we're made in the image and likeness of God, it helps us to answer why shouldn't I bully? Why shouldn't we torture babies? Now, here's the deal. That good, remember I asked you, what's the good? That good is not something that we create. It's something that we discover. To put it another way, what is the meaning of life? There's two ways to answer that question. One way is as Sigmund Freud says, and I'm going to paraphrase, because he's really difficult to read. But I feel smug and self-satisfied that I'm quoting Sigmund Freud. I just want you to know that. Confess to you right now. Jesus, I I need your help. Sigmund Freud believes, and many philosophers believe, that because we're nothing more than the product of random chance, we create from inside ourselves our own meaning. The answer to the question, why am I here, is answered from within ourselves. And many philosophers will argue that that is very freeing. It throws off all moral constraints. It throws off all restrictions. The answer to the question, who am I, why am I here, what's my purpose in life, what's the purpose of life, Freud would argue, as well as many other philosophers, we create that from within ourselves. What what Jesus is arguing, and and C.S. Lewis puts it nicely, and he actually engaged with uh, some of Freud's writings. C.S. Lewis, who's a British philosopher and author, says this, we don't create our meaning, we discover our meaning. It exists outside of ourselves. It's something that exists out there. We don't create our meaning, we discover it. Now, in that video, I want you to notice something. When asked the question, what is the purpose of life, how many people answered... Enjoying created things. I like to fish, and I like a good fish fry. Family is the meaning of life. All these, these, these absolutely miserable Hallmark Christmas movies, they're just, uh, they're just from the abyss. Every single one of them is proclaiming to you that family is the meaning of life. But unless your kids, and, excuse me, unless your great-great-grandchildren do one of those DNA test things, you will absolutely be forgotten. They will not remember you. In fact, they'll probably be embarrassed by you. <laughs> Family is the meaning of life, right? Created things. We create from within ourselves the meaning of life, but what Jesus says is no, the meaning of life is something we discover. And that's why Genesis 1 is so foundational for us, that we have been given meaning because we've been created We've been designed. In fact, I would strongly argue that we have been designed to ask the question, why am I here? Why is it that we all have this same longing? We've been designed as such. Now John Gray, who I think is an atheist, or at least an agnostic, he wrote a book called Straw Dogs. And if, if, if you read one book by an atheist, I think you should read Straw Dogs by John Gray. In Straw Dogs, one of the things that Gray does is as an author and as a philosopher is he really pushes down in on this idea that we are nothing more than a cosmic mistake. He begins to play that out for us. He actually starts calling out all of these, um, these half steps that many philosophers will say, well, you know, there is no meaning in life, uh, but we should all go fishing. And Gray pushes in on that. And I want to just give you this real quick from John Gray. He says this. If we truly leave Christianity behind, which is what he's arguing for, if we truly leave Christianity behind, we must give up the idea that human history has meaning. Neither in the ancient pagan world nor in any other culture has human history ever been thought to have an overarching significance. In Greece and Rome, it was a series of natural cycles of growth and decline. In India, it was a collective dream, endlessly repeated. The idea that history must make sense is just Christian prejudice. Is there a point? He says, the very statement, there is a point, is a Christian ideal. And if we get rid of Christianity, you can't ask the question, is there a point anymore? Because only in Christianity do you have a philosophical, and I would argue theological foundation to believe that there is a point to everything. Within Christianity, you get an origin and you get a destination. Where are we from and where are we going? And many of us, we, we, we find this idea of being created very frustrating. We worry that, it, now, now, now let me talk to you for a minute. Let's talk. You ready to talk? Yeah. Most of us are like, nope. <laughs> Most of us are nervous that a God might exist. Because if God exists, and if we're created, it will put constraints on me. Anyone who says there is no God has just as much of a religious incentive to say their belief as I do my belief that there is a God. Because those of us who say there is no God, we, are, we find, many of us, if we're honest, we find incentive in this. If there's no God, I'm completely free to do whatever I want. But I wanna ask you, is that freeing? One of the interesting things is the suicide rate of nihilistic philosophers and artists. That's one thing that Francis Schaeffer, who's a philosopher uh, in the 60s and 70s, one of the things he pointed out is, it is impossible to actually live as if there is no point. We drive ourselves mad if we truly think that I create my own meaning. So are we truly free? And and, and this idea of being designed, I just—I want to lean into this a little bit. Are you sure that not being designed, being the product of random chance, actually will lead to more freedom? Does the absence of restrictions ever lead you to more freedom? To an extent. But let me ask you this. Do you not see that in all things that we find to be good, or wholesome, or healthy, or meaningful require restrictions. I'll put it another way. My wife and I are free to have deep emotional, physical, relational intimacy because we've intentionally restricted ourselves from having that same intimacy with anybody else. Monogamy, like we call it the ball and chain, you guys ever heard of? You guys ever heard that? Okay, have you ever said that? It's got real quiet. You you could literally hear a hundred of these. Now, I like the metaphor, ball and chain. I actually love it. Because when I got married, I stood in front of a bunch of people and before God, and I said, I'm gonna chain myself to this woman because one day, I'm gonna wanna run away. And one day, she's going to want to run away. And when my wife and I fight, when my wife and I's relationship grows sterile, when we grow cold towards one another, we find ourselves chained together, so we have to work it out. And only because of that restriction, only because of that chain, only because of those boundaries are we free to be that 90-year-old couple playing the piano with the mall that y'all keep talking about. You'll notice you don't see a bunch of 30-year-olds like that out at the restaurants. No one looks at two 30-year-olds in love and says, oh... We look at the 90-year-olds and we're like, look at them, they trust the same. How cute, just kiss them. That deep level of intimacy only comes from 50 years of restrictions. <laughs> Do you see that we only find true freedom for the great things in this life through restriction? I am not free at this point in my life to climb Mount Kilimanjaro because I have not restricted myself (laughs) see true freedom does not come from an absence of restrictions true freedom comes when we operate within our design that goes for anything is a plane free to soar underwater a plane only soars when it is restrained within the boundaries and restrictions of aerodynamics, they can fly a mile up, but if a plane is flying a mile underwater, we're in trouble because it is operating against its design. True freedom is found when we operate within our design. God has created you with a purpose, in love. Now, one of the interesting things uh, that we find, especially when we think about the meaning of life, is love often comes to the surface. But I want to lean on this a little bit. If love is the meaning of life, and I am nothing more than the product of random chance, if love is simply a chemical reaction, why do we keep singing about it? If love is nothing more than just the chemicals in my brain, engaging in a certain way for the procreation of the species why do we keep using love as the meaning for life i don't mean to be crass but basically what you're saying is the meaning of life is to have sex and propagate the species if it's simply nothing more than a chemical reaction but no in jesus teaching we find the true source of love in John fifteen nine through 13, I'll just read it for you. This is, John, uh, this is John recording Jesus. This is what Jesus says here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. TV timeout. did you hear that? As the Father has loved me, Jesus, so I have loved you. Now one of the things that Jesus shows us is that God exists, and this is mind blowing, and we'll have to talk about this later. That God exists eternally as one God in three persons. It's something we call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The triune God created us in his image and therefore we were created out of love because within the Trinity you have an eternally existing community of self-deferential persons, each loving the other. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. This is what Jesus says. Jesus has eternally loved the Father and the Spirit, and these are words that we use to describe the three persons of the Trinity, and the Spirit has eternally loved the Son and the Father, and the Father has eternally loved the Son and the Spirit. And I know that that's like nosebleed section theology. Here's the big point, you were created in love. God did not create us because he needed someone to talk to. There was no incompleteness in God. God was not walking around one day saying, I am so bored, I know what I'll do, I'll make Jim. Okay, you're boring, people. You you think you're the you, you think God is like impressed with you? Right? Like you can impress your mom at T ball. That's about it, right? Do you think like do you think that you make up for what's lacking in God? No. Rather, we did not we were not created so that God could have someone to love or as some sort of toy for God to play with. We were created because God is a creative God, and out of love we have been created. This is seen most vividly at the cross. You wanna know, okay, God loves you, how do I know? For God so loved the world. You wanna know how much God loves you? Look at the cross. We talked about that on Easter. You can look up the tape, or go to the the tape. What is it the 90s yeah go out to the tape ministry pick yourself up a cassette pop it in your little radio in there yeah go online and listen to the sermon we were created in love and here's just just two things okay i want to lean into this the christian ethic is fundamentally and i'm going to borrow another theologian's phrase here and, and use it a little bit differently the, the, the christian ethic is this love god love neighbor and do whatever you want love your god Love your neighbor and do whatever you want. How we love our neighbor, boy, that takes some thought. Boy, that takes some prayer. Love God, love neighbor, do whatever you want. We are born, we are created out of love. Number two, suffering, okay, so I'm trampling, I get it. But your suffering is not meaningless. If what Jesus teaches is true, your suffering, while you will likely not get an answer, why am I suffering now? Has anyone ever gotten that answer? I mean, I have asked that question multiple times and never got an answer. Why is this unique suffering happening to me right now? I don't get an answer. But what I do know is this. If what Jesus teaches is true, my suffering is not meaningless because Christ himself suffered. If you and I are nothing more than the products of random chance, then the question, why am I suffering, is a stupid question. But... If we are created out of love, it's a very legitimate question. God, if you love me, why are you letting me suffer? Totally legitimate. That's a question that easily fits within the Christian worldview. In fact, in the book of Psalms, one of the consistent themes that comes up over and over is that question. God, I think you exist, or I have faith that you exist, or I believe that you exist, but why am I suffering now? if you're so loving and so good. That question can only be asked inside of the worldview that Jesus gives us, that we are created beings and we are created in love. Your suffering is not meaningless. You want proof, look at the cross. This is one of my favorites. Uh, Do you have friends? I don't, tell me what it's like. (laughs) Invite me to your parties. (laughs) Listen, nobody invites a pastor to parties. Let me tell you how much, okay? We go to weddings, we go to funerals. Nobody's inviting us to parties. <laughs> if you look at friendship, why like why does friendship exist? One of the interesting things is it doesn't actually propagate the species. Some, some would argue that we evolve to become friends because we get around people that help keep us safe from other, you know, from other groups or being together helps us conquer other tribes and things like that. But, but haven't you noticed that you don't generally, I mean, outside of like, high school, you're generally not sizing up your friends for their um, ergonomic value to your life, right? You're not looking at somebody being like, I, don't, I think I could take you in a fight, let's not be friends. No, some of the deepest friendships, they have no value to life, but they give, they, they make life valuable. C.S. Lewis has this great quote that I just butchered right in front of you all, and if I had more friends, I'd get it right next time. Right? That there's no survival value in friendship, but friendship gives survival value. Do you see? Yeah. Now, I want to give you a, just a little, a little teaser. Have you ever been with a group of friends where you are fully, all of your person is completely engaged, and the night comes and goes, and somebody makes the mistake of looking at their watch and says, oh my goodness, it's... 3 a.m., where did the time go? For a moment, with your friends, in the context of community, what you tasted as your complete person was brought into activity, what you had a taste of is the eternal. You got a taste of the eternal. Because time, for that, time didn't cease to exist. You can look at your watch and say there was a sequence of events, but for a moment, you did not feel as if time was restricting your community. So where does friendship come from? I would argue that the only, the only satisfying explanation for deep friendship is found in the fact that we are created with a purpose by a God who has eternally existed in community. Otherwise, our friendships are meaningless. And so God created us, God created you in love for joy. Revelation 21, 23 through 26, I'll just read a little bit of it. It says, uh, the glory of God illuminates it. This is the new heavens and new earth. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never open, or excuse me, never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring their glory and honor of the nations into it. One of the things, and again, that's a, it's apocalyptic literature in Revelation, but one of the things that it's painting for us is our destination. Where are we going? God has created us out of love for joy. One of the things that you see as the scriptures describe heaven is an eternity of enjoyment. Most of us are, have been lulled by the idea that heaven is ethereal. It's just a bunch of clouds and weird looking babies with harps. And by the way, that's horrifying. Rather, the scripture shows us that our eternity is a restored earth and heaven and earth come together. We don't go up there, pie in the sky. God comes. Remember the Garden of Eden? Not like you were there. The Garden of Eden, where was heaven? It's an interesting question. God dwells with his creation. What's the eternal state? What does heaven look like? God on earth, on a restored earth, with his creation. And just as in the garden, and and by the way, there's an old confession that goes like this. What is the, what's the ultimate point of humanity? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Some of us grew up with the Westminster Confession. We would ask ourselves the question, what is the chief end of man or mankind? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see that in the book of Revelation, an eternity of enjoying God, that God has made us for direct communion with him and to enjoy him through his creation. We are built to explore and discover. We are made to science. Is that, is that good grammar? I don't think so. But it's good theology. I don't know where we got this crazy idea that somehow faith and science are in conflict with one another. The very motivation to do exploration and belief that things work the same today as they will tomorrow is found found or founded on the idea that God has built us to explore and that there is order in the universe. We are built to science. All of creation is revelation. God is revealing something to us through his creation and when we explore and discover and we engage in science, and exploration and thought it is one of the ways that we enjoy God's good creation and enjoy God directly. Also to create in response to our exploration and discovery, we create through art and work and engineering, but our enjoyment ceases when we make the created thing the center of the story. When we make the created thing the ultimate thing. We are made in love for joy, and true joy is only found in communion with our maker, our creator, and that's found through Jesus Christ. This is the worldview, the faith, the story of Christ, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected on the third day, victorious over his enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and one day he'll return to restore all that which is broken And we will exist eternally with our God in communion with him and with one another in joy and love, exploring his creation, creating art, working just as our God has worked. I will be out of a job. Lawyers and doctors, we will be out of a job for all that which is broken will be made whole. But the artists are gonna have to teach us. And this good news Is what we share. For those of us that are Christians, how do we respond in light of this answer? We work with excellence. We serve sacrificially. We live peacefully. We stand for the marginalized because everyone is made in the image of God. And we share this news with the world in word and in deed. Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? You have been created in love for joy. Will you turn to your creator to find it?